the Modern MBA podcast with Marie Kerwin and Kristen Rossi. Our mission is to help MBAs coming from, going into, or merely considering more unorthodox career paths. We're a community to find inspiration and share stories. Today on the Modern MBA podcast, we are speaking with Adam Taylor, the CEO of the Gwent Wildlife Trust. by introducing yourself so tell us your name and um, where you're from and where you did your MBA. Yeah sure so I'm Adam Taylor I live in the Forest of Dean in Gloucestershire and I work in Gwent which is in southeast Wales. Um, I studied for my MBA at Warwick Business School on their distance learning program I finished last December and hopefully I'll graduate this July. Fantastic um, so we'll come back to your MBA experience shortly but just to go back a little bit before then so you studied sports and exercise science for your undergraduate um, before moving into the wildlife charity sector so what was it that attracted you to work in this area initially? Um, well during my undergrad dissertation I was lucky to be under a fantastic um, professor who was doing some pioneering research into a field of work called green exercise which is basically the effects of exercise when you're um, doing that in a natural environment so my research looked at the impact of um, the same exercise program whether the um, subject was doing it in a green environment a a nature reserve or whether they were doing the same exercise in a um, a gym setting and it found that ultimately um, mental and physical health were both improved quite a lot more markedly when it was in a natural setting. So this included blood pressure, heart rate and mood. Um, and that kind of excited and interested me. And then following university, after a brief stint in um, central London, working as an analyst and then a, a management consultant, um, I realised I absolutely hated um, that environment in terms of the, the you know, very grey, urban, noisy, dirty environment and craved the countryside that I'd grown up in. So um, after, um, you know, after working in the city, I ended up volunteering on weekends with um, wildlife charities and other people and quickly learned that that looked like an interesting career choice, something I never even realised was a career in this country. And I haven't seen, obviously, um, documentaries and things of fantastic, you know, rangers and the like in I don't know, Kenya and other places like that. Um, didn't realise it was really a profession in the UK. Um, but luckily, yeah, by bumping into these people who worked for the wildlife trusts, um, I was able to volunteer with various charities and then got into conservation through that. That's really amazing. I was going to ask um, if it was kind of through volunteering, because I know for the, I guess for the charity sector, it's very common kind of to do that and then to um, and then to move into like to paid roles, right? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because... Um, Pretty much everyone who works for a conservation charity, you know, there are a big four in um, in the UK. So the Wildlife Trusts, the Royal Society for Protection of Birds, the National Trust and the Woodland Trust. And pretty much regardless, the first job that you'll get with any of those will have been after a period of volunteering. Whether you've done a degree, a master's degree, and quite a lot of people who work in the sector actually have doctorates. Um, but they still, regardless of how much education they've done, need to probably do a couple of years worth of volunteering. So... I was very fortunate in as much as um, I got in at the ground level and just started with volunteering and by volunteering for roughly the same amount as those who had possibly spent eight years previously in education in that field as well. I was able to then find my first job. No, that's fantastic. That's really great. Sorry, apologies for that pause. I'm just, uh, as I mentioned, the room I'm in is really echo- like echoey. So I've just, um, I've just put a coat over my head and my laptop to try and dampen <laughs> it a bit. 
<laughs> the glamour of live recording, fantastic. You know, I'm going to keep that in the edit. <laughs> <laughs> like that, I'm hiding under a coat. Okay, it's really, really bad in here, so I thought I've got to do something. Um, brilliant. No, I think that's... Um, yeah thank you for sharing that and I think you know particularly for how you first kind of how you first got into the field so mm. you well let's go back to your MBA so you started that in 2019 um what was it that kind of drove you to to do the MBA and how did you kind of get from you know that early stage in your career to making that decision um like with just about everything you know I, I've always thought it's better to be lucky than smart and I seem tend to have um, bobbed through life quite luckily I think um, so I wasn't originally going to study for an MBA and didn't even know what one was. So I was um, working in the conservation sector. I'd become a senior manager at a young age. Um, and I thought I'd learned as much as I could from those around me. I kind of was, you know, actively going out and networking and trying to learn as much as I could within the sector. And I thought, well, maybe it is my lack of education in you know, the environment sector and ecology that was limiting me and my ability to understand things and to move them forward. So I was originally going to do a master's degree in conservation science at a local university, but then um, I was unwell for a period, so I had to defer. The next year, my father passed away suddenly, which was unfortunate. And basically, by the time I'd gone through all of this, I was thinking more and more about how much time and effort I was going to have to put into studying. And how, to be honest, I wasn't actually that interested in um, the academic side of the field I'm working in. And I didn't necessarily think it would add much because... As I've said, you know, across, for example, the wildlife trusts, over two and a half thousand staff in the UK, um, of which there are several hundred doctors. So people have got doctorates in their relative fields. Um, but we still weren't able to find the answers to the problems that we were facing. So I started to kind of have a think around and go, what are the perennial issues we're facing and who might have answers to these? And that's when Luckily, during an appraisal, I got chatting to my chief exec about it. And he mentioned, you know, that he'd always wanted to do an MBA and thought about it previously. And I went home and Googled it um, and then thought, yeah, actually, that seems, you know, that's a much more interesting area to go into. Um, and I'd very tentatively done some, you know, day courses on things like marketing and fundraising and, you know, leadership and things. And it interested me. And I'd read some of the, you know, popular management books. Um, and you know, fortunately, I was able to kind of look at this, think, yeah, that would meet the needs of the conservation sector, you know, the wildlife trust. And I thought about it. And interestingly, looking back now, it was ultimately in the kind of through the lens of competitive advantage in that I looked across all the wildlife trusts and out of over two and a half thousand staff, there are only three who had MBAs and two of those were CEOs. And I kind of went, this seems to be something that can get you ahead, but also seems to be able to answer questions that other people aren't answering at the moment. So off the back of that, um, looked up um, MBAs and wanted to do it distance learning because charity sector is quite hard to get into and there are limited jobs. So ultimately, if you step out, it can be quite hard to get back in. So I thought I'll do it alongside work and also being a whole new area of study for me and something I hadn't done anything um, previously on. I was slightly concerned that I wouldn't necessarily either fit in or understand it or enjoy it and that I might not follow through. So I thought, well, actually, if I do this as a distance learning, I can do it alongside work. And if you know the worst comes to the worst, I can step back out. So looking online, obviously found a host of different distance learning MBAs. Um, and you know, in the UK, places like the Open University are, are well kind of known and respected. But I was really pleased to find that Warwick Business School did this 
um, you know, distance learning MBA. And when I started to delve into it, that it was ranked, you know, number one for distance learning MBAs in the world by the Financial Times. And it's now been ranked that four years in a row. Um, and those two things coupled with an absolutely fantastic open day when I went there, they, you know, they made you feel very welcome. They talked about things in very relatable terms. It seemed like something that I could um, keep up with as long as I, you know, worked hard and paid attention. So those those sorts of things were, you know, the, I suppose, ingredients that made it um, possible for me to apply. Um, and then I applied and was fortunate enough to get a maximum scholarship, which made it easier on a non-profit salary because there's you know, no money obviously coming from the charity to pay for it. And it very much was, um, you know, something out of my own pocket. But with, you know, Warwick Business School's reputation um, and what I thought it might potentially offer to the conservation sector and to the charity sector more generally, I thought it was worth a go. Absolutely. And am I right in saying as well that even on the Warwick distance learning programme, there is an option if you want to, to come to the Warwick campus and do like a week um, in person? Is is that right? Do they still offer that? Yes. Yeah. So there are, um, as part of the distance learning MBA anyway, there are two what they call Warwick weeks. So ultimately there's kind of a um, it's a five day you know, uh, batch of time and you'll get together as groups. You know, you're working on certain modules and you will do group activities and and challenges and you know, write reports um, together. And obviously also have you know, um, a whole host of lectures and uh, maybe some exams and other things. So that was really good to actually have the kind of camaraderie and get together for a set amount of time and feel like a student again, although a slightly older, slightly more tired student. And um, and yeah. And after the event, um, I just found out that she is an alumni you can go back and do two face-to-face modules for free. So I'm hoping, you know, if I graduate in July to be able to go back later this year and maybe early next year and pick up another two modules when the stress is off and I can just enjoy learning. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I keep meaning to look into it because you get like it's a similar deal on the full time MBA. Mm. Um, and although I think there is an expiration period on it, obviously for us, um, the period right after we finished was was COVID. Um, yeah. So I keep meaning to look into it and see kind of what our options are, because I love the idea of being able to go back. Um, just, yeah, it would be amazing to do that. And also, like you say, to do it when the pressure is off as well. Yeah, I did find it kind of um, nerve wracking. And when you're, you know, when you're sitting there um, uh, in a lecture theatre for the first time in years and you realise that your, you know, your hand can't write anymore because you spent so long typing and all those sorts of things. <laughs> it's just those kind of joyous kind of everyday things that you forget from the first time you were a student. But it was lovely. And it would also be nice to go back and, you know, have some drinks with um, with old friends. Now we've all got our MBAs and be able to relax and know that we can be slightly hungover for the lectures in the morning and it doesn't matter quite as much. <laughs> I think there's a difference between the full-time full-time MBA. I don't think we, we hesitate to be hungover. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so um, that, that possibly should have been the cohort I was part of then. If I had the confidence <laughs> to do it, I should have done that. I don't know. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to hand over to Kristen um, for the next set of questions. Yeah, sure. Brilliant. So then talking about the course, I mean, what what was your experience and what were really the highs and lows of it? Um, it's a really interesting question because um, it's a bit like being asked, you know, what's your greatest weakness in an interview? And it's quite difficult because you don't want to be overly critical. And to be fair, Warwick Business School, I, I can't really be overly critical. But in terms of, you know, my overall impression, I enjoyed it. I learned a lot. I'm proud of what I achieved. It was hard, but you know, I worked hard and wanted to make sure that I got, you know, the result that I thought was possible. 
Um, I suffer really badly from anxiety and imposter syndrome, so I wasn't sure whether I'd fit in or keep up or finish. But the course was really well structured. The online platform is incredible. It's really well kind of um, put together. And the lecturers were, you know, to be honest, inspiring. You know, the cohort were fun. But um, I'd warn against, you know, trying to take a marketing exam while still drunk from the night before, because unfortunately cohort members will... um, will insist that you stay up longer with them and drink for longer. And some other cultures can drink much better than um, than poor little Brits can. Um, in terms of the high for me, um, every few weeks I had a kind of eureka moment. So learning about cognitive biases, macro- macroeconomic trends, competitive advantage, you know, all those sorts of things. I suddenly started to understand the causes and reasons for like corporate actions and governments and global trends. And that was really exciting for me personally because I'm on the autistic spectrum. So I sometimes struggle quite badly with trying to understand things which I see as illogical or irrational. So to suddenly be able to kind of put a bit more flesh on the bones and to maybe see behind the curtain and go, oh, okay, so that's, you know, it may seem illogical, but actually it's because they're doing this or it's because of the history of that situation, which means that they're moving in this direction. And then finally, you know, the low point probably related to, um, and it's like in any job, you know, in any sector, but you know, there were a couple of lecturers who I think possibly only taught because they had to. Um, so they possibly used slightly more dated materials. They didn't necessarily encourage discussion because they wanted to, you know, get off um, get off the lecture and go and have their tea. Um, but it was a very small minority. You know, the, the exceptional nature of the best lecturers far outweighed the slightly um, laissez-faire approach of the, of the less inspiring. How do you feel the MBA will help you in your career and with the challenges that the sector, the wildlife sector faces? Um, it's interesting because so the, the most obvious example to date is that after 15 months on the MBA, so I, I did mine over three years, I, I um, slowed it down at the end. And the reason being that um, 15 months in, I applied for a chief executive role at the Wildlife Trust and was fortunate enough to get it. Um, so I become the youngest of the 47 Wildlife Trust CEOs. And that wouldn't have happened without the MBA because during the interview, I was able to identify lots of red flags in their accounts. I pulled them to pieces and found lots of problems that they didn't realise um, were visible to the outside. Um, I looked at the mismatches between their operations and their strategy and also explained you know, the change process for how I would look to take the role forwards over the next couple of years. So that's the biggest change. And that's the reason why I took a two year distance learning and made it three, because I was trying to, you know, take up the reins of this new job and do that alongside. Um, Since I've been in post, I've used the MBA um, to devise a new strategy, which cuts out more than half of the work the Wildlife Trust previously did. So we were very um, opportunistic, but quite funding led. And the issue with that was that we were all things to all people, but we were also very um, replaceable. You know, we were substitutable. We didn't necessarily, we didn't have a competitive advantage. Anyone else could pretty much move into a space and and take our place, um, you know, providing that particular service or product. So it was really interesting to look at, you know, in terms of resources, capabilities and assets, what was our sustainable competitive advantage? What could we do and no one else? And there are plenty of things, you know, an organisation of 60 years old, which has already built up huge expertise and strong relationships with certain parts of the public sector. The fact that we have a large land holding, the fact that we have lots of local members and people from the community who are involved. We do have a lot of strings to our bow but we weren't necessarily playing those we were we were trying to kind of be all things to all people and then kind of looking forwards and this was the whole reason why I did the MBA was because 
there were so many um, intractable problems as I saw them. Um, and I just wasn't sure where to go and therefore just copied other people. You know, we just mimicked the best performing wildlife trust or the best performing conservation charity at any one time. But realistically, most of those um, approaches weren't particularly um, applicable. They weren't, you know, they weren't right for our context or our organisation um, or our time in the organisational life cycle or whatever. So kind of looking forwards, we've got a massive over-reliance on private sector measures. So we're still looking at things like profit and we're looking at, you know, staff turnover and retention rates. And realistically, a lot of those things don't work very well in the non-profit sector, especially the profit measure. So trying to understand what we want to be measuring and how we consistently measure outputs, outcomes and impacts over time so that we can um, celebrate and sell the product that we're providing, which is unique, is something that I'm kind of setting my mind to and my my you know um, my heart on. In that, um, I think that we can then start to truly illustrate the value that we provide to society um, and to the communities we serve. Whereas at the moment, because we are possibly using private sector metrics, we are competing for. Um, contracts with private sector firms, especially from the public sector. Um, And equally, we at best can tell good stories, but we're not really able to say, no, we tried this thing, this worked or it didn't. And, you know, it's resulting in this species, you know, increasing in population or decreasing in range or whatever it might be. So I think there's a massive issue around what to measure and how to measure it. And so many charities have spent way too long looking at, you know, um, at finances and, and paying attention to that because it's one of the hard facts that you have. Um, and realistically, we need to get away from that because you know what you measure is what you manage. And therefore, we spend a huge amount of time worrying about how much money we've got and how we could make more money. But there was a great paper on the uh, Nature Conservancy in the States, and they showed that you know the Nature Conservancy increased about fivefold, but it didn't really have any increased impact. So they were bringing in you know hundreds of millions of dollars, but they weren't doing any more than they were five years previous with twenty percent of the means. And it's because they were focusing on the wrong target, and that's where I think, especially in a country like the UK where it's contested and where we don't have huge amounts of money, we do have to make sure we spend that in the best way possible. And that's where I think having an MBA and being able to critically look at what's working and what's not dispassionately uh, may help move us forwards. No, that, that's really, that's really, really interesting. And I have to say, I, I, I really agree on the idea of, for one, figuring out what you need to be measuring uh, to make impact is so important. I think that cuts across not just the charity sector, but it cuts across most sectors. Um, and But then also that point about being everything for everyone, and I and I'm in my last um, role, I worked with a charity in a consult in a more like a project management consulting nature. Mm. But but I think that was their problem as well. You know, not really focusing on trying to be when you're trying to be something to everyone, you're actually nothing. Uh, yes. And 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 as you said, you're irreplaceable. And I think that really is hard for charities because because I think they often think, well, so many people can relate to us. But, but that, that's not necessarily what you want to do. You want to, you do want to have that focus. So, um, no, really, really interesting. And I think these things, the public generally forgets about them. You know, we don't, we don't think about these little nuances and the challenges that you face. But it's just fascinating. No, I agree. And I think also there is that point about thinking that, um, for example, you know, there are a lot of output measures and we focus too intently, I think, on, you know, getting points on the board. But realistically, yeah. that doesn't translate. So it's a bit like the kind of... Um, 
marketing pyramid, you know, wildlife trusts, you know, huge awareness of us but and, and of nature conservation in general. But there are so few people who will then take the next step and act for wildlife or will be an advocate yeah. or will, you know, and you think, actually, that's a problem. We've got a really broad base, but there's no one actually doing anything. They're all looking to us to do it. And you think, no, we've got to empower them. or We've got to, you know, work with fewer people, but take them further up the pyramid. Yeah, no, that, that was, it's very funny. That was when I was, the, the trust I was working with, that was one of the things they were trying to do was to convert people to be advocates, not just to assume that the charity is there to take care of it for them, but actually they can get involved. And, and that's how actually the impact will be made. It's really interesting because in all charities, we, um, so my, my dissertation for my MBA was on kind of managerialism and how, um, you know, the, um, the belief in the management, you know, in management as a practice and in private sector practice in particular is, you know, um, taken as best practice and therefore translated into the public and um, third sectors. And it really is interesting the way that so many charities use the language of business, but without really knowing what it means. You know, we've all got strategies and we've all got KPIs. And the one I particularly like, just going back to your example, is, you know, the journey in inverted commas, we've got journeys for everything. Everyone's on a journey, whether it's members, donors, volunteers, staff. And you think, I don't think anyone's actually mapped out these journeys or figured where they're going. You know, we've basically just set them all off on a road to nowhere and they've run out of fuel somewhere in the dim distance. And that's a big concern for me because we pick up the language and the rhetoric, but we don't necessarily understand the practice underlies it and what we're trying to achieve. Yeah, no, I I agree. I agree. Um, but this is going to bring us to the next last question because I'm aware that we're reaching towards the end of our, our end of our our call and our chat. Mm-hmm. And um, so, the final question is: What would be your advice to MBAs looking for careers in the charity sector? Um, one thing I'd say, and it's really important, is that remember that your MBA is a competitive advantage, and realistically, it's a sustainable competitive advantage because. People in the third sector will not have MBAs and probably can't afford them. Um, companies aren't going to suddenly miraculously turn around and send all of their staff on, you know, on two year courses or one year full time MBAs. So don't be afraid of the fact that you might not be an expert in um, humanitarian aid or wildlife conservation or homelessness or drug addiction, or whatever it might be. Um take to them your expertise and your knowledge and how that can be applied to improve their situation. So, you know, it could be operations management, leadership, strategy, economics, organisational behaviour, whatever, really. But your diversity is a massive strength and you will be probably the most diverse person in their gene pool because you will be from a totally different sector and have a totally different way of looking at the world. And that will be invaluable. So don't kind of shy away from talking about the MBA and pushing that forwards as, you know, your main selling point, because they've got, you know, an organisation full of people who are experts on the thing that they're already expert in, you know, so you don't need to worry about that. Um, A simple thing which is important to reflect on and be honest with yourself about is the fact that um, the third sector, you know, non-profit sector will pay probably atrociously compared to whatever you're paid at the moment if you're in the private or public sector. So, um, I'm paid about a quarter of the average or the median salary for um, MBA graduates on the distance learning MBA or the MBA from Warwick. Um, and that's fine. It, it's never really worried me or bothered me, but it may be that you, through your career or whatever, your lifestyle or whatever, um, that you have a certain amount of money that you need to bring in. So be aware of that because 
you know, there's nothing as um, soul-destroying and demoralising as poverty. So don't kind of go into it with, you know, the idea that you'll be having a great day every day and you'll be saving the world and therefore you can overcome any of the challenges because we all have terrible days at work even if we do jobs we love and we do them for the love of it rather than the money. So make sure that you're comfortable um, as well as doing a job that you're interested in. Um, one thing I would say about, you know, charity sector is that it does feel like a family. So, you know, a bit like a startup, you can put your mind to, you know, to test, um, you know, to the test and tackle really wicked problems every day. So you can be creative and entrepreneurial. And realistically, as long as it's in broad line with the strategy, people will let you run with it. So since I've worked in nature conservation, I've, you know, all of these projects are, are things that I've dreamt up and that I've basically not been stopped from doing rather than necessarily told to do. So, you know, creation of wetlands are provided drinking water to tens of thousands of people, um, installing natural flood defences to save hundreds of homes from business and um, businesses from millions of pounds of damage, um, securing thousands of acres of land for the benefit of wildlife and people, reintroducing species that had gone extinct in a certain area. It's all great stuff. And you can basically look at these really exciting, challenging areas of work, which no one else is focusing on because there is either limited resource or no money in solving the problem. But actually, that means that you've got some really sexy problems that are sitting there just waiting for you to kind of pick them up and run with them. And there's nothing more exciting than against all odds, um, you know, pushing water uphill, so to speak, and really you know, having to work against systems and against um, the prevailing thoughts or, you know, the fact that you haven't got any money. And getting the right result at the end of the day you know these are the things that do sit with you throughout the whole of your career and the last point i'd make is you know and it's from one of the lesser studied modules um even at warwick which was the um economics of well-being when i studied it um i had a couple of people who i respect and um you know count as friends from the mba course and they said to me oh well if you're not going to take your mba seriously why are you bothering um, which I thought was quite interesting, but I studied the economics of well-being, so I was under, I was keen to understand what, you know, um, how people valued things and uh, how you could look at um, uh, social science and how you could look at changing behaviours and nudge theory and those sorts of things. You know, how you could effectively direct people towards t making a choice which is beneficial for them, without having to, you know, incentivise them through money or whatever else. Um, and on that module, you know, learn about hedonic adaptation. So ultimately, regardless of how much you earn, you'll quickly um, get used to it and you'll just crave more. So I've personally found that it's much better for me to do something that I find meaningful and interesting rather than focusing on the money. Because I found that when I've worked in jobs where I've earned more, I've obsessed on that and not necessarily enjoyed the work but with this I enjoy the work every day and I don't look at my bank account from one month to the next because I know there's enough even if it's not a huge amount and I spend my time my spare time thinking about you know how to solve the problems that are out there like I don't know climate change or biodiversity loss or um, you know how you can uh, make sure that people don't have to choose between eating or heating their homes so I quite like you know living they're in the moment trying to solve real world problems rather than looking at money as effectively the proxy for something else, because I like to live in the moment rather than one step removed. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of good points. I have, to, I have to kind of think out which one I want to talk about first. But I, the last point, I think, is really, really crucial because I think a lot of times people say, oh, I'm going to work in this job, make a lot of money, and then I'm going to do something good. And and in some sense, if you're happy, if you really get joy from your work 
and you're doing something that that actually gives back, then aren't you? Isn't that already like that's satisfaction? You know, that is that is what most people strive for, um, but they sort of dissect it and separate it out and and don't realize they can actually get it both at the same time. Yeah, I'd agree. And I think it's, you know, it's not um, for me, everyone's an individual and everyone will make the choice that's right for them. And sometimes, you know, um, I grew up in a family that was very poor and, you know, most of my relatives had to work exceptionally hard and jobs they absolutely hated. And I think that's one of the other reasons that pushes me towards a career I enjoy when you Mm. see people working long hours and broken and still not earning much money. And I kind of thought, if I can have my cake and eat it, so to speak, I'd love to. But you know, so many people enjoy solving the problems they do at work, you know, or being the best at what they are working at. And whether yeah. that's profit making, public sector, third sector or something else, you know, there's no saying it's right or wrong. If it's right for you, it's right. So mm. I think that's the main kind of thing is for the third sector. Mm. It can be a bit frustrating, but I find it quite entrepreneurial and creative. Um, it can be, um, you know, and you can feel like you're fighting an uphill struggle because the, you know, when you're looking at climate change, when you're looking at biodiversity loss, they are sadly still going in one direction um, mm-hmm. and we're not able to stop the rock just yet. But as I've often had the conversation with people in the charity sector, if someone could categorically tell me that we would lose the battle at the end, we would still all fight it because we care about what we do and we just basically, you know, knuckle down, try something different and see if we could achieve it a different way. People want to learn more how can they get in touch with 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 the trust um so i would go online and uh, if you're in the uk um uh, northern ireland uh the isle of Orkney or the isle of man then uh, go on to the wildlife trust's website and you'll be able to find your local wildlife trust there are 46 of them across the uk but there are also loads of other fantastic um wildlife conservation charities in the uk and abroad um, one which I particularly like the work of is Durrell Wildlife Conservation Trust. They do some amazing species um, reintroduction work and some species conservation work. So, you know, all I'd say is have a look at what's happening in your area. And even if it's not necessarily your bag to make a career out of it, um, as I go back to kind of my first answer, I'd say it's really good for your health and well-being to be outdoors and doing something active in nature. And I've found that by volunteering with conservation charities and the like, that that gives me a purpose and a reason for going out and doing something and it's only you know um half a day a month or something and you can get a really good uh, buzz for feeling that you've done something good for someone else as well as getting some exercise and doing good for yourself that's all for today's modern mba podcast i'm Kristen, and i'm marie if you like this episode remember to hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts And you can get access to articles and more great content by visiting our website, themodernmba.co.uk, or you can follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Instagram. Until next time, bye! Bye!